You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, hello, and welcome back to Fly on the Call. Today, I'm talking to Raccoon Tour about their album, The Denton Weaver, which is almost a decade in the making. Denton Weaver is theatrical music in the vein of Forgive Durden's Razia's Shadow, also not out of place with the more modern Jiraiya or Will Wood. Over the many years prior to the finished product, the album was re-recorded multiple times, developing an extensive lore behind the story. This episode hits on all that, as well as working with High Surrender Records and how they helped shape the album making music geared towards getting younger fans excited about music, and so much more. The Denton Weaver is undoubtedly full of bangers, so I hope you'll check it out and enjoy this conversation. kind of wanted to start uh the interview by getting into some of the like lore of raccoon tour i know you have like a 60 plus page lore bible for the story of denton weaver um an outline for a graphic novel and the first 200 vinyl orders came with like a zine full of lore can you give like a quick cliff notes version uh for people who may not be familiar with it yet yeah absolutely um so the denton weaver is essentially about two kids um, one of them is a girl who wears a red mask. Her name is Frankie Delaney, and her family moved away from this little town. We just call it Converse County. Frankie's family moves away. Her dad gets a really good job working as a city engineer. Um, but Frankie realizes really quickly that her father is in charge of a lot of these anti-homelessness architecture installations that they're throwing up. Uh, essentially, she just starts to become really disillusioned with this nice, fancy lifestyle that she's grown up in. And um, so as soon as she turns 18, she steals the family car and heads right back to her childhood home and realizes it's being gentrified. She bumps into an old childhood friend named Wyatt Lee. Uh, we show him as the guy with the yellow mask. And they quickly rekindle their old friendship they had when they were in elementary school. And essentially, they decide, you know what? Fuck it. Am I allowed to say fuck? Oh, yeah. No problem. (laughs) Hell, yeah. They decide, fuck it. We are going to destroy this town, and we're going to drive property value down so we can finally afford to live in the place that we were born in. And shenanigans ensue. (laughs) And so, essentially, the Denton Weaver is about these two characters just, fuck capitalism, and we're in love, and we're going to smash everything, and we're going to light things on fire. We're going to drive out our capitalist overlords. Um, but reality sets in and it does have a pretty uh, bummer ending when, you know, uh, it ends with a funeral. And so it's a meditation on growing up, uh, being forced into a system that feels like it really doesn't want you. Um, I live in Boise, Idaho, and um, this is the most egregiously expensive and prohibitive real estate market in the North America, uh, comparing our wages to our property values. It's insane. Um, so it's very much inspired by that. Um, a lot of existential dread that comes with not having a place in that society, in that world. And so you're just kind of left to your bare bones instincts and, Oh God, I'm going to die someday. All that jazz. That's the briefest, smallest, most confined cliff notes version that I can summarize. Like you mentioned, I have a 60 page lore Bible um, outlined for a graphic novel. That's just easily 200 plus pages. It's huge. It's uh, yeah, it's, it's wild. 
I mean, I've seen you kind of like refer to this as like your high school baby and like say it's kind of like a, a journal or a scrapbook of like your young adulthood, um, kind of like warts and all um, through like this lens of fiction. Uh, and I'm curious kind of like where all those like sides of things kind of blur together. Um, that's it's it's actually kind of a precarious um, balancing act that I need that I've done, but also um, something that I think more artists should keep in mind in general. Uh, a lot of the Denton Weaver is very much inspired by real events. But what I need to keep in mind and what I think a lot of people who do the same thing need to keep in mind is that at the end of the day, these are still real events with real life consequences, people who were affected by it. And so you need to treat these things with respect. So either you fictionalize it or you um, handle it with utmost delicacy, you know? So when it comes to trying to find a balance with the fictional and the real world, I interject a lot of, a ton of fiction into everything I do, uh, not only for respect, but also just, I, I think it lends to more exciting uh, storylines too. I mean, it's super fun taking seeds of things that actually happened and blowing them up times 10, you know? Yeah, it's a bit of a precarious uh, balancing act that took me a couple of years to really even out where I felt comfortable with it, where other people who were involved with the things that happened felt comfortable with how they're represented. It, it all just comes down to tact at the end of the day with the, that kind of thing, you know? And I don't hear enough artists talking about that, you know? There's so many fuck you ex-girlfriend songs, but you never hear the ex-girlfriend side of it, you know? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think it's really interesting, like, I, th I think part of that is because so much of the kind of like DIY music is, you know, really puts a, such a high value on like, uh, you know, being real, being like heart on your sleeve and stuff. And I think it especially makes sense, like what you're saying, coming through the lens of your music with this kind of like almost like MySpace era theatricality that's kind of been coming back in a big way recently. And I think that's something that really appeals to me about your music is the way you kind of blend the, the fact and fiction. So it's really interesting to hear you talk about it like that. And I mean, like musically, it, it is kind of like, I kind of put it somewhere between like the scene aesthetic and like Forgive Durden's Razia's Shadow, but also kind of like with a hint of like Pup's like modern raucous energy. Um, I'm oh, curious, yeah. what are some of like the places that you uh, drew inspiration from for this album over the last, you know, eight years? That's a lot of inspiration to take. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um well, over the past seven years, uh, I went through a lot of phases in terms of what I was listening to musically, and every single one of those phases appears in one way or another. Something like um, Denton Weaver, the opening track, if you're listening on the canon track listing, is um, more reflective of the kind of thing that I listen to now, where it's very bombastic, theatrical, kind of a crash course of a lot of different sounds. That was really influenced by a lot of my Midwest emo DIY peers, uh, friends that I've made playing music and stuff like that. And folks like Lincoln or um, a lot of uh, stuff like Guitar Fight from Fooly Cooly, Hecra, is such a huge unending influence on me. Uh, God, I worship the ground that Hecra walks on. Um, but then you also get like... Almost a panic at the disco or 21 pilots fueled by ramen vibe with stuff like Mount Hecla or Fuck, where um, it, it has very specific pop structures. It's catchy. It's unapologetic. Synthy. It's fun. It's goofy. Uh, that's where you start to really pull in the uh, theatrics, you know? Something like Funeral, Funeral Song. Um, I remember I was pulling directly, I really liked how Coldplay structured their song Death and All of His Friends, where it's kind of just amps and it amps and it builds up into this one giant glorious uh, payoff at the end. You know, I, I like, something about Coldplay felt very mature, their first few albums that I really enjoyed when I grew up with them. Um, stuff like AWOL Nation, I, like I mentioned, Twelve Pilots was huge. My Chemical Romance, I really like uh, their energy and their theatrics as well. The Used, I took a lot from how they structure songs. The Used, specifically, I really like how they try... Well, songs are made up of building blocks, you know? You have the verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus, generally. 
Something that I really liked about the use particularly is that when they're writing a song, they make very specific care that there's something new going on in every single verse, every single chorus compared to the last one, which, you know, when you listen to the pop punk realm, that's one of my biggest gripes with it is it can um, feel a little copy and paste sometimes. And so I really like that ethos that the used have about how they construct music. So I definitely borrowed that. And also just kind of DIY vibes, um, especially uh, in Trophy Street stuff like uh, Flat Sound, uh, Early Cave Town, Spooky Ghost Boy. We're, we're all over the place on this record, but um, the nice thing is I recorded all of it in like, well, the final recording I did in like two, like one week. And so there was a through line of consistencies was not completely scattershot all over the place. But I do think that there are fun elements in different places that are being borrowed from that uh, really contribute to some dynamic, I hope. For sure. Um, and you mentioned like your love for Hecra. I'm curious, like I, I checked out a couple of songs actually today and definitely interested in uh, diving in a bit more. Um, but what is it about uh, their music specifically that, you know, really piques your interest? And also, like, what was it like kind of, you know, working with one of your favorite artists for horror show? Um, well, let me correct you there. Hecra is is my favorite artist. Um, I worship the ground that he walks on. You kind of mentioned it a little bit earlier here. I love that Hecra is able to take what are very clearly nonfiction events in his life, like the his music plays off like diary entries in my head, and he explodes them uh, up to, you know, Stranger Things, Super Eight, eighties uh, movie where kids are running around on a bike fighting monsters, and none of the adults in town believe him, kind of thing. You know, something about Hecra and his music and the autobiographical elements of them really, really impress me and really make me entranced and excited in this world that he created over his music stuff like summer camps and odd jobs in his teen years and he has this really specific eye for details i am 22 years old and so essentially i am a little bit too old to completely identify with the zoomer generation but i'm also way too young to be a millennial and so he was kind of able to pick out a lot of these mid-2000s relics that I picked up on leftover Goosebumps books and stuff like that, um, Pokemon cards. And so in his music, he describes stuff like the smell of carpets and air conditioning. He, he has this very specific aesthetic for a suburban, dull life and interjects crazy imagery into it that just knocks me on my butt and so essentially i am very very influenced and inspired by that specific element of his music in my music you know where you kind of take the mundane and try to interject some theatrics into it also i just think he sounds cool too <laughs> well here's the thing though the nice thing about falling in love with smaller artists is they're people, so you don't need to go through like an agency to get a hold of them. I, I just found him on Facebook and I added him and I just DM'd him and I was like, hey man, I am working on a ukulele cover of your song AM, but I kind of wrote my own song on top of it. Could I make this a song? He was like, sure. I said, do you want to sing on it and like come out of retirement and publicly sing for the first time in like eight years? He was like, sure. And so we wound up uh, finoodling Hecra somehow, which was absolutely bonkers and crazy. I remember we were recording rough demos in October 2019. We took the night off while I was in the studio and a bunch of friends and I just went to go see Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, which is a movie I've been waiting so long to see. It was raining. It was thundering outside. And as soon as we leave the theater... I watched the YouTube video on it. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what happened. Um, <laughs> it was as we were leaving the theater, uh, I pull out my phone and I see an email full of voice stems from Hecra. He's like, here you go. And I was like, holy shit, we need to go right back to the studio right now. And they're like, it's one o'clock. I don't want to go back to the studio. I was like, we got Hecra voice stems. These are gold. And so we went back to the studio and we plugged them into our song. And it was magic. It was so gosh darn cool. Yeah, just I was so pumped to be able to work with Hecra 
And I'm also really excited that a lot of folks are being introduced to his music through this project, which is also just such an honor for me because I just I hold him in such high regard. And I'm so glad that the scene is kind of starting to really appreciate him, too. You're starting the hashtag Hecker Revival. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, we've, you know, m- mentioned it already a little bit about how uh, long this album took to write and record. And part of that is that I've seen like many mentions of hundreds of Instagram memes about the album never being released. And, you know, the fact that it's kind of been, you know, hyped up as coming since 2018. I'm curious, like how that kind of like rabid fan base slash community started to form for you. Um, <laughs> Well, the nice thing about having a YouTube channel is that the audience that you cultivate on there isn't just glued to YouTube forever. And so uh, me, who talks about a very specific kind of music on my channel, when I say I'm going to start making music like that, I kind of already have a built-in fan base no matter what I've done. And so when I release a tiny little basement demo out to that audience, and it doesn't sound like trash apparently because a lot of people really liked our earlier demos that we released that tends to get people excited and so i don't know it's kind of like in horror movies where you don't show the monster and so the audience just imagines something a lot scarier than whatever you could have (laughs) i think the same idea happened to the album where they have enough of a taste where they know what it could be and so i think people just kind of built an album inside of their own head And they fell in love with that idea. And so essentially it was everybody's favorite album because it was something that they came up with themselves, I guess. And it just kind of also found second life in a meme of like, well, Nate said this is coming out in summer 2018. Uh, Where the hell is this? In reality, that's about the time when the record label found us. And that just completely upended our entire production process because like, holy shit, I can actually make something cool with these resources that I have now. But that means I got to start all over and over and over. Turns out you don't make a good album the first time you try. I was just going to follow the line of the label. It seems like from what I've heard, like I Surrender has been both very like supportive and involved with, you know, the album and you in general. And kind of like they went with a lot of your ideas, but also helped you kind of like pare some things down musically and otherwise that were kind of a bit indulgent and help you kind of like keep focused on, you know, the listener as the, the end user. I'd love to hear a little bit more about kind of like the relationship with them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'm not going to lie. It got a little dicey at times when I was first getting started um, because this album had taken so long to make. I was so attached to all of these songs as they were in my head. And so when we record it and I'm like, holy shit, this is how it goes. And I send it over to them and they're like, why are you playing this solo for seven minutes? And, I didn't even, and I'm like, listen, guys, it's because of this, 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 this it ties into this. You can't see, but I'm moving my arms like a crazy person right now. And they're like, yeah, we hear you, but it's kind of boring. <laughs> like, do you need this? And I'm like, yes, we do. And they're like, OK, listen. We're going to compare this version and then we're going to have uh, Brett Romnes trim this down to what we're imagining. And then you can listen to it back to back and see which one you like better. You know, just to show you what we're imagining so you don't get too up in arms. You can actually see this and hear it. And I'd listen to it for the first time. Like, that sounds like shit. It's bad. It's awful. And then I'd listen to it again. I'm like, eh. eh. And then I eventually found myself referring what they had in mind. I'm like, damn, it's almost like these guys have been industry professionals for like the past two decades. And they know what they're talking about. And I think out of... They, they wound up really changing up a lot of these songs where we had long drawn out instrumentals where in reality, the audience kind of got what we were going for the first time. We didn't need to loop it four times, you know? And so I think there's only been one thing we really met an impasse at, uh, which was Horror Show and the big explosion payoff. They wanted a lot quicker, but I really like the uh, lead up after our bridge. And that's the only thing that kept that I kept my foot on. Um, but everything else that they suggested turned out to be gold. And so they were really involved in the sense that they could see what I was going for. And they gave me the resources that I needed to make it happen. And at the end of the day, they gave me final creative say on everything. If I wanted to be like, fuck you guys, I'm going to do whatever the hell I want. They'd be like, okay, here you go. You're, you're a loss. 
which I think is absolutely incredible that they would let me do a bad idea. But I think they really gained my trust, uh, especially with this baby, which is near and dear to my heart for a decade. That I want that to really show how incredible I Surrender has been and still continues to be, is that I let them have this much creative control with something that was so close to me, you know? Yeah, for sure. I mean, that seems like... I feel like you always hear either horror stories about labels or just like nowadays, like they just aren't really able to do as much, but that's like such a unique kind of relationship. And I think that's really special, especially like with it being, you know, this huge project for you and your first album also. It's like so interesting that there were kind of like so many cooks in the kitchen in that way. (laughs) Yeah. I mean... I don't know. It's it's kind of like you start off making this really cool bowl of cereal and you're like, oh my God, are they going to be flipping out when I mix these Cocoa Pebbles with the Cocoa Krispies, you know? <laughs> uh, but then they hire a Ratatouille chef going, I see what you're trying to do. Let's do it better, you know? <laughs> nice. Yeah, I like that metaphor. <laughs> and, uh, you know, another kind of like big part of the uh, label relationship, it sounds like, was the contention between the the streaming cut of the album and the vinyl director's cut which i actually lean towards a little bit more now that i I found it out and i've listened to it a few times Um, but i I see the merits of the kind of more energy oriented uh version on streaming platforms but i'd love to hear a little bit more about how like how those conversations went kind of figuring out what to do with that and yeah just kind of how how the two versions came together yeah absolutely um I surrender Rob and Gabby, uh, who are the wonderful folks who run it. They've been in the industry long enough. They've seen enough album production cycles where they're like, okay, you write, you record, you organize the songs, then you do the album artwork, music videos. You know, there's a specific order. And normally, whatever order you put the songs in is one of the last things you think about. And generally that comes from artists who are just writing during practices and they're like, holy shit, this is a cool idea. And then they just have a ton of songs. And they just pick and choose, you know, that's how most people do it from my understanding. I do not do that at all. If I write a song, that's a song forever. I I don't scrap songs. And um, I normally write albums instead of songs you know where i have a specific idea i want a song in this spot that accomplishes these things uh and this is supposed to elicit this emotion from the listener and it ties into these things and i eventually get out like a giant graph and i map everything out and i put way too much thought into it but man if i'm not excited about the end product by the end of it that is very 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 different from what they're used to And so when I'm coming at them first in the very beginning of the production cycle, I'm like, okay, listen, we're going to record song number four. They're like, what the hell are you talking about? We haven't even heard it. You don't know what this song is. And I'm like, yes, I do. You guys don't realize it. And I did a very poor job articulating that at first because I didn't realize that there is an order to this kind of thing usually. Um, So there was kind of a a dissonance that I wasn't aware of. I just thought these guys are being weird and kind of pushy. And we started talking about uh, track listing very early on, as soon as we had all the demos and like, this is the order we really like. This is a very good order. And I'm like, no, 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 listen, this is what order it needs to be. And they're like, we don't get it. This doesn't sound good. And then I send them over this 60 page document and they're like, what the fuck is this? What the hell, Nate? And I'm like, well, I'd said there was lore. And they're like, we thought it was like a couple inside jokes you had with your friends. We didn't expect a goddamn novel. And I was like, oh, sorry about that. Um, And so they read, they actually did read the lore. And like, this makes a lot more sense. Um, We understand. We get it now. (laughs) We We wish you sent this to us a lot earlier. Because that could have avoided a lot of disagreements. But the problem still stood that my version, if it was just some random guy on Spotify who didn't give a shit about my weird lore cinematic universe, uh, they would listen to it and be like, this is kind of slow and it kind of drags. And on Spotify, uh, they already don't pay you Jack Diddley Squid, so you really want to hook somebody as soon as possible, make them a fan as quickly as you can. So at the end of the day, 
I do think it was the right call to have one order on Spotify. And if somebody really likes the project, the vision, they want to buy the album, I think they should get what is, in my idea, the best version of it. If, you know, you're going into it for themes and a sound and a journey and an adventure, you know, I I think that the uh, director's cut is probably the best way to go about it. And I am happy that people who listen to the two tend to prefer the director's cut. That's generally the uh, overall consensus from what I've gathered. And that makes me really excited uh, that people get it. You know, for sure. (laughs) I think that's at the end of the day, all I want is people just understand, Oh, I see what he's going for with that. You know? Yeah. I mean, I think it's almost even like as someone who is very excited by like, uh, by concept records and by just the idea of an album in general, like finding out that there was a different version or that there is a different version and it's quote unquote the definitive version. It's like that got me even more excited about, you know, listening to it and seeing what the difference are differences are and seeing how the two compare and stuff. Yeah. And I think it's crazy how different they wound up sounding and feeling when you play them. The same ingredients, but if you just organize them a little bit differently, it's kind of like burgers, you know? Like if you put the patty on the bottom or patty on the top, it makes a huge difference, apparently. So I guess albums are kind of just like that. I mean, I guess you kind of answered this question a little bit in saying that, like, you always feel like, you know, when you're writing, you do it with the intent to make an album. But I'm curious, like, what was the first time throughout this process of writing and recording that this did feel like an album to you like was it was it right from that inception or was it like once all the songs were written or not until you know it was fully recorded generally how i go about it i'm very weird i like to make spotify playlists and pretend that those are albums and my favorite one was a collection of like 10 songs uh in fact it's on our spotify list if anyone wants to check it out it's called denton weaver inspirations What I do is I find 10 songs that I think go really well together. They make me really excited artistically, where I'm like, holy shit, I really like these cool ideas they're throwing out. And I organize them and I pretend, oh shit, this is just like the best album ever written. And I essentially kind of use that as a blueprint where I'm like, okay, we have this one song at first, it's progressive, it's very technical, it's got a lot of change ups, uh, and it's definitely an opener. You know, this one just feels like an opener. Um, and then you have the next song, which is just like a straight pop song and so on and so forth. I can't remember if there is a pop song in there. <laughs> you know, essentially, if you put up the Denton Weaver inspiration playlist next to the director's cut playlist next to each other, you'll see that both songs perpendicular to one another are have some similarities in terms of what they do in terms of their placement in the playlist. And so I think once I actually get a playlist made and i already have some song ideas that could coincide with them in that uh moment the album is kind of made for me so essentially sometimes it's right before i even write an album i'm like this would be a cool fucking album if you know it's i my songwriting process is so weird i don't know anybody else who does anything remotely like this yeah i mean it was also really interesting to me i listened to the uh good noise podcast that you did and when they asked about if you thought you know that new music coming after denton weaver would be would take kind of as long you like very quickly and very like sternly slash excitedly were like no what was it about kind of like the process of Denton Weaver or the idea of Denton Weaver that like made it something that you're so precious with and how did the process kind of like affect the other stuff that you're starting on? Um, I'm a very sentimental person. I'm the kind of person who has a hard time throwing things away. I get attached to real estate. So when grandma moves out of her house that she's had for ages, I seem to be the only one in the family who's sad about it. And so when I work on an album, an idea that I've had when I was 14, And it takes ages and ages. I eventually just get a lot more precious with it simply because of its age. And the problem is, the reason it took so long is because I had no fucking clue what I was doing. I had no DAW. I knew like four chords on the ukulele at the time. My band consisted of three other people. I had no clue how to play instruments. And so I band practices wound up just us watching BoJack Horseman together. And eventually nothing really happened until I got a hold of a friend of mine who was a multi-instrumentalist. And I was like, can we record an album? I, I mean, a song together. Where I essentially tell you what to play and you play it. And he 
let us do that as a school project for me. Essentially, that's when I kind of put together my sound. And I was like, holy shit, this completely changes all my ideas because now I know what uh, possibilities are there. And so at that moment, everything I'd written is completely changed because now, I don't know, it's like realizing a whole new medium. And then you learn, oh, my God, I can buy an iPad and I can create my own music with like all these incredible sounds built into GarageBand. And then your entire songwriting process changes again. I think the reason it took so long is because I was putting my whole process together. Uh, everything was so fluid because it didn't exist yet. It was all forming and it was changing over and over and over and over and over. So I think that just the fact that it was learning and that it was forming at the exact same time and the two were kind of dependent on each other, but they weren't solid enough to support each other. So the album was totally different every year or so. And so this end project is just a hodgepodge of all the different ideas that were glued together. And is that something that you, I feel like that's what bands typically do over the course of like their first two or three EPs is kind of get to that discovery process. Are you glad that you kind of waited to, you know, come out the gates swinging versus release things piecemeal as you were figuring things out? Um, I think in terms of like, you know, our placement in the community and people's first impressions, yeah, I'm pretty glad about that. Um, but I do hope that I do hope that someday uh, we'll be able to release our earlier versions, uh, the stuff that doesn't sound all that great, the stuff that's us experimenting. You know, I think that there is something precious about that kind of thing. And I think when I was kind of finding myself as a musician, it wasn't the crazy, complex, classic rock recorded in a giant cathedral with 400 instrumentalists who are all the best in the world. And you have these crazy solos. That didn't excite me because that felt so out of reach, you know. Uh, what got me excited was stuff like Cave Town, where he just made stuff on GarageBand. And I was like, I can do that too. And while I think that the Denton Weaver is a really good album that I enjoy myself, if I didn't write it, I think it'd be a pretty cool album. I think that the DIY stuff that we have, I feel, could be really exciting to somebody who is in my exact same shoes as well be able to hear these ideas and be like oh i see the evolution i think that could be me someday if somebody was taking inspiration from this project you know for sure yeah we, we need that six lp box set <laughs> yeah absolutely so i think it is best for the band as a, a project that the first outing turned out so good but i do want to kind of share the earlier sessions and you know the dirtier stuff so that folks can hear it and be like oh shit this is neat you know in its own weird kind of cute way yeah i mean you mentioned like you know certain aspects of what became the finished product kind of like feeling out of reach in those initial stages and i think one of those things for probably a lot of bands that either they don't think of as a possibility or don't even or aren't interested in is working with like session musicians in the studio I'm curious, like, how did you kind of go about, you know, figuring out how to do that? And what was what was your experience like with that? And especially with like the music that's like so intricately layered, like how did you kind of keep everything together? Um, that's another reason why the album took so long. Essentially, I would spend weekends in the studio with my friend Jordan Thornquest. And he was essentially my uh, session musician. Where I'd say, okay, Jordan, we're going to try this, uh, play these chords at this tempo, and you do a change-up. Sometimes I'd be in there and I'd be pointing at a board with all the chords written on everything. Because I've sat on these songs for so long. I know how they go in my head. Um, and the process is trying to teach someone to play it without there being any mistakes that I can pick out myself. Because I'm so intimate with these songs. You know, I can pick up on little things at that point. Just because I've been so obsessive over it. And so... At first, I was kind of experimenting at my uh, poor uh, friend Jordan's expense because we would just end up scrapping entire songs, you know, like entire recordings and all the stems because at the end of the day, it didn't turn out that well. But as soon as you fuck up, you realize, well, this is why it didn't work and we can uh, not do that next time. And so the next iteration of that song sounds a lot better, but it's still not quite there. And then you re-record it, and my friend probably wants to kill me at this point. 
I come in one day, dude, we gotta completely change this entire song. He's like, what the fuck? Poor guy. God bless Jordan Thornquist. He's too good for this world. You know, uh, and so basically by the time that I got into the Big Kid studio in New Jersey with Brett Romnez, and we had a dedicated, incredibly talented studio musician, uh, Andy Altadonna, I knew these songs inside and out. I've been teaching them to people for ages, whether they be studio musicians like Jordan Thornquest or musicians in my live band who I'm teaching the chords to. I know how to teach people these songs now. I know them inside and out. I have recorded each one of these songs at least two times separately. Um, So it was a really fast process. We recorded the entire album start to finish in like four days because I knew it inside and out and there was no messing around. I'd been through the process over and over and over and over. It was super efficient. And so I think now that's kind of how I write songs is I just record them myself on an iPad or an iPhone. Uh, I work with a friend. That's where you get the experimentation down is when you're by yourself at home and it doesn't cost $70 an hour, you know, and you just get it down pat. And once you know the song inside and out, you can teach it to anybody. Uh, That's when you go into the studio and then you hire a really talented musician and you crank the song out. So I'm weird. I, I don't know anybody who writes and records music like this. Yeah, I, I think one of the craziest things is that after all that, those years of preparation that you recorded all the vocals in a single day, <laughs> what, what was that like part of the process like for you? Well, we started that afternoon off by driving to the liquor store. As all great stories begin. I picked up some shitty vodka and a lot of ginger beer, some limes. And uh, a couple beers, uh, some rum. None of it tasted all that good. And so essentially, I just spent that entire day downing Moscow mules, uh, rum and coke. Uh, I would just take shots in between songs sometimes. And it was horrible. And I wanted to die. There's video on our band Twitter account of just me rambling about Brad Taste in Music, a really great YouTube channel. I was like, no, if we fuck this up, Brad Taste is going to make fun of me when he reviews this album. We can't do that. I was in my pajamas the whole day. It took like eight hours and I was waiting for my voice to blow out. But apparently I tend to sing in a register that's really easy on my throat, apparently. So I didn't need to take all that many breaks. I was just so tipsy and drunk the whole time. But the thing is, I tend to get in my head a lot if I'm sober. Which is probably not a good uh, habit to get into drinking before performing. Um, I tend to go easy when I'm playing live shows, but recording, I just can't do it. And so we just spent that entire day. We did five songs. We took an hour or two break, and then we did the last five. And anything that needed to be screamed, we saved for the very last uh, few minutes. The last thing that we recorded was the shrieked vocals in Converse County. I was essentially hanging off of a door frame like a monkey and I was just banging my head back and forth, screaming into this open room and there was a microphone in the middle of it. So there was this wild church reverb that was just naturally occurring. And I was drunk, I was tired, my throat was blown out and it wound up sounding really goddamn cool. Yeah, uh, so to be honest, I don't remember a lot of the vocals, um, which is probably a good thing, uh, but they sounded okay. So that's all that matters to me. Uh, and I mean, like once everything was recorded, all the you know artwork was set, and you know things started like finals started getting pressed and everything. And now that we're like a few months out past the release, like was it easy for you to kind of like let go of this project? Does it truly feel complete to you, or is there kind of like anything you would change or anything like that? If I was left to my own devices, uh, this album would take another twenty years to write and. It would be recreated over and over and over and over again. I still would never be able to get it right. I think that's one of the lessons that I learned over this is you need to put a deadline on it eventually. You need to say, this needs to be finished by this date or else it will never be done. You can polish it forever and ever and ever, but there's only a certain level of polish before people quit noticing. And I feel that we ended it just in time, just when it needed to end. In terms of what we plan on doing in the future. I think at this point, it's just mostly about lore. Uh, It's about trying to explore the story because I really like the world and the characters. And I just feel like I haven't had 
much of an opportunity to share that world much yet. Right now, I'm working on a, a zine, which will be bundled with the first 200 vital records. We haven't shared much of anything about it yet, but, you know, it's a it's an in-world newspaper where the characters are planning these anti-capitalist attacks, and they describe their methods and who they're targeting and why, and there's a map of the town and there are fake events. Um, there are advertisements for summer camps and... Uh, local restaurants and everything is a reference to somebody I know in real life or something along this line, something I grew up with that absolutely nobody would be able to pick out except for me, you know, maybe my mom, I don't know. And um, my mom will not read that zine. I'll tell you that. Basically, I just want to tell the story because I think the story outside of the music is pretty, I'm, I'm pretty damn proud of it. Actually, it's pretty poignant if I do say so myself. I'd love to do a graphic novel someday, but graphic novels are expensive. I would love to create like a full-blown animated music video that looks professional and not like a DIY band animated music video. It, it just basically comes down to this these multimedia elements. And um, the label's been uh, supportive with that kind of thing, too. The label's just been so great. So they're the ones paying for these zines. Um, we're going to see how it performs and uh, if people really, really tend to like it. Uh, we might get a, we've talked about it, we might get a full-blown animated music video going. We might get a graphic novel going someday. Uh, just depends on, you know, how people take it and how hard I'm able to push it. That's basically all that's left. Yeah, I, I think it's, like, exciting that you're, like, kind of continuing to push it instead of, like because you can tell there's so much like passion and energy and everything behind it like having it just be you know this album that's released and then you tour and then you make your next album it, it feels like it deserves a little something more than that yeah um something i'm worried about is that i won't know when to stop with that either because <laughs> <laughs> i you know i have some really fun ideas that i'm hatching up for album number two that are pretty far along the writing process and they make me excited too. Uh, but now I, you know, it, it feels like you're kind of tied up between two things of, um, you know, I want to give the Denton Weaver its time to shine and breathe and come into its own. But I'm also really excited about this new project too. You know, it's it's a balancing act. And uh, hopefully I have someone else give me a deadline and uh, that comes to fruition, you know? And then... I know you've said before that like the kind of whole point of Raccoon Tour is to make music that you would have been obsessed with when you were 14. I'm curious if like you find your audience to tend to be more towards that younger demographic, like young teenagers or more towards people who are your age, who have like kind of the same nostalgia and references for the time when you were 14. Uh, I am actually very excited to say that it is a pretty much younger audience uh, than most of the other folks in my scene, which makes me really excited. Because um, that shows me that I would have probably been hanging out with them if I was 14 years old as well. And so that kind of is validation for what I was going for. I wanted to make something that would have been excited to a freshman in high school. And it sounds like there's a lot of freshmen in high school who are really excited I even like put thought into the logo that we have, the dead cat. I wanted it to be easy for someone to scratch into the desk of their, you know, at their school or something along those lines. You know, I, for me, those were the things that put a band into legend status in my head when I was a kid is when I would see my friends scratching their logos into desks or when I bump into my buddies and they're all getting excited and talking about it over school lunch. Uh, and then we make a big event adventure out of going to see them live. Those are the bands that I am so nostalgic for, and those are the projects that influenced me as I got older. It's It all comes from that specific age of adolescence. And um, hopefully by specifically trying to make something for that younger demographic, I don't know, in 10, 20 years, they might you know remember us warmly or something along those lines. I don't know. I think that's how you get a really passionate fan base. People who are excited to see your music come to life and support you with all your weird band ideas and 
try to give you the benefit of the doubt if you want to do something bizarre and weird, you know? So I guess it's a little strategic. Yeah, I I feel like like finding someone at that time that you're in your growth, in your stages of growth, and then like also knowing that it's a project that's going to continue to grow, like being able to grow alongside it is a, a super cool experience. And like, I mean, some of the bands that I loved when I was younger, like the Wonder Years, they're my favorite band of all time. And they're never going to stop being my favorite band because I do have like those core memories tied to them. <laughs> Hell yeah. You know, it's stuff like that, I guess. And I don't see a lot of other bands putting that kind of, you know, aiming for that specific demographic, which kind of bums me out. Yeah. And then, I mean, we've already hit on so many pieces of advice, especially for people who are in bands, who are starting bands and, you know, working on, you know, these big projects. But um, I do always like to wrap up the show by asking for a piece of advice or something you've been thinking about that you want to share, whether it's music or life or anything else that's been on your mind. Yeah. Um, I would say, I guess this is something that I always try to tell people when they tell me that they're starting a band is I say, go into it expecting to fail. Go into it knowing that there's a 99% chance that you're not going to make any money. You're going to have a fan base of your mom. And you're never going to leave your town, probably. Uh, You're going to be stuck playing bars and basements. And your shows are going to have seven people attending. And you're going to have less than 100 monthly listeners on Spotify. And you're never going to make a penny off of this. In fact, you're going to lose tens of thousands of dollars. And you're going to keep your day job and you're probably not even going to be able to afford band merch. And if you do, you're going to buy secondhand stuff from the thrift store and actually manually paint your logo on top of it. And the reason I tell people that is because, well, generally, number one, it's true for 99% of people going to music. But also, if you go into it expecting to get famous and crazy, big and rich and successful, and it doesn't happen... Either A, that's going to affect how you're writing music, where you kind of sell your soul, but you haven't generated anything worth selling yet monetarily. And there's nothing worse than a local band that's trying to make it big, but everyone can tell. You know, uh, they generally tend to be laughing stock locally. But number two, I, I really want to make sure that folks are doing music for the right reasons, where success externally shouldn't be the goal. You should be so happy and proud with whatever you're making. And that should be enough because that's the only way that you can ensure success as a musician is if you are the only person who can determine if you're successful or not. You can't predict if you're going to make money. You can't predict if you're going to generate fans, but if you like what you're doing, if you enjoy the lifestyle of playing in bars for drink tickets and playing in sweaty basements that are very clearly fire hazards, and generally not really going anywhere like that, it tends to be those bands that take off. Because they have such a deep passion for the craft and what they're creating, audiences can feel that. And that makes other audiences excited to be a part of whatever you're making. So it sounds counterintuitive, but the folks who try to succeed tend to fail, and the folks who don't care about failure tend to succeed. You know, I know I made a video on my YouTube channel, How to Start a Band, and that made a lot of people angry when I told everyone you're not going anywhere. But I think that there's some nuance to it, and I think it's coming from a good place. If you can accept that you're not going to go anywhere, you're probably going to be the guy who goes somewhere. You know, a raccoon tour could be a puny, tiny baby band that, you know, is still playing in basements and... In fact, we just got the news yesterday that we're going to be headlining a stage at our local music festival, which is insane. We've been having wonderful, incredible success, but honest to God, if you took it away, I would still be so goddamn proud of this project. I'd be so excited with this music. I, If I was the only person listening to my own songs, I am still stoked. I'd just be waiting for the day I could build a teleportation time machine. I send it back to my 14-year-old self, and if that was the only kid who was listening, I'm still okay with it. And so I guess that is just the best mentality I think bands should have. And so I hope that whoever's listening who's planning on starting a band, just uh, keep that in mind and don't let that scare you away. Because if it does scare you away, you're 
probably not going to do very well in the first place. For sure. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that sentiment. And I think it shines through very much in your work. And I'm curious, obviously, we can't hit on everything because of the 60 plus pages of lore and more. But uh, is there anything else that uh, we haven't hit on that you have been really excited to get out there or haven't had a chance to get out there? Boy, well, I'd like to just say that, man, when we start touring, our live shows are going to be pretty, um, pretty wild. The nice thing about being a multimedia individual, you know, who does music, but also video and performing arts and all that jazz is, you know, in spaces like live music, you can do everything, you know. So we have a full 45 minute video that's synchronized to all of our live performances and we have costume performers, projectors, screens, uh electronic click tracks and virtual synthesizers and stuff like that. So it'll be a, it'll be a blast as soon as we get to show more folks uh, what our live show is like. It's been fun uh, playing in Boise and getting bigger crowds every time we play. Uh, generally, that's a sign that you're doing something correct, but I'm just excited to show regional and national friends that that's the kind of fun stuff we enjoy doing too. Yeah, I was watching the uh, video from the re- record release show earlier, and it definitely looked like a hell of a time. <laughs> it was pretty awesome. I'm not going to lie. That was surreal. Having people sing the lyrics back to you. That was so cool. I hope you enjoyed that peek behind Raccoon Tour and the making of the Denton Weaver. I love all the effort and work that went into it, and just how excited the band still is about it. I really think that this is a special record, and definitely highly recommend that you check it out. There's a little bit something for everyone. As always, Fly in the Call will be back next week, this time with the much-hyped-up first-ever hip-hop artist on the show. Definitely want to tune in for that one. Fly in the Call is brought to you by Sound Talent Media, in partnership with Evergreen Podcasts. A special thank you, as always, to the alternative for helping to promote the show, Jiraiya for the theme song, and Michaela Jane for the artwork. You can keep up to date by subscribing to the podcast and following the show on Twitter and Instagram at Fly in the Call Pod. Feel free to email any questions, comments, or other feedback to me at flyinthecallpod at gmail.com. You can do this. Hello out there. Hi, I'm Hal Schwartz. And I'm Flynn McLean. We want to tell you about our podcast, None But the Brave, which is dedicated to taking a deep dive into the work of Bruce Springsteen. We're currently in our fifth season. Our latest episodes focus heavily on Bruce's 2024 tour and have featured such guests as Anthony Castrovince from MLB Network and Barstool's Kirk Minahan. We're also covering the 40th anniversary of Bruce's biggest record, Born in the USA. And as part of that, coming up this week, Uproxx cultural critic Stephen Hyden returns to the show for a fascinating hour-long conversation about his new book, There Was Nothing You Could Do, Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA and the End of the Heartland. To listen, you can go to our website, mbtbpodcast.com, or subscribe on your preferred podcasting platform. We hope to see you further on up the road. Thank you so much! We'll be seeing you!